Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and very excited to have with me today Dr. Jamie Marriage. And yeah, so we are going to talk about, I have to read this off the intro or off the paper for her intro because it's just amazing. Clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, and recovery advocate. Uh, her book, Trauma and the 12 Steps, an inclusive guide to enhancing recovery is coming out in July. So yay, welcome Dr. Jamie. Thank you very much for that warm welcome and for your enthusiastic yay. I'm very excited about this book's release. Yes, I've been writing a book what seems like forever, and I've gotten to like the 90% point, mm -hmm. and now it's that last little, you know, 10%, like, well, that imposter syndrome thing is kind of kicking in with me, like, oh, is my message really worthy to be out there in the universe, so... It's a process and I have many books and I will say on some level, either the imposter syndrome or what I sometimes call the popular girl syndrome kicks in. And for me, what, what, I, what I call the popular girl syndrome is I know that I have something to offer. So I, I think I'm past the imposter stuff, but what can come up for me is it's not as good as like the more popular people who are out there doing this kind of work. Um, like it feels my voice is almost too small sometimes. And that's something I've had to address in my own healing. Yeah, and that makes sense, and I, I, I see it as well, um, where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have you know, 3,000 followers on my Facebook page. I love that this message is getting to so many beautiful people who are looking and searching and for it, and then today I interviewed one of my amazing, beautiful previous guests on a pandemic self-care, sure. I tagged her, and I was like, oh my gosh, she has 119,000 followers on her page. I was like, wow, I mean, that's so cool, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Struggle is real. So yes, I'm, glad we, right. I'm glad we voiced that with each other. Right, right. So yeah, so talk to us um, about, well, we wanted to kind of dive into your own journey. And let's sure. start out there and then we'll, we'll talk about some strategies for people. Sure. So I'm a woman in long-term recovery from addiction. I've been continuously clean and sober from drugs and alcohol since the middle of 2002. And I was very fortunate that I was shepherded through a 12-step program to get sober by a woman who was uniquely trauma-informed before we were talking too much about trauma, even in the field, as I would come to learn it. So um, when I wrote the first edition of Trauma in the 12 Steps in 2012, my voice had uh, kind of emerged as a leader who was still both a pro 12-step person. I was because there, there's a lot of 12-step backlash, which we may or may not talk about even further. And a lot of it is legitimate. A lot of the criticism is legitimate. And a lot of my trauma colleagues are some of the biggest folks dishing that criticism, saying that the 12 steps aren't trauma-informed enough. 
But I found that they can be. And certain people who are working in the 12 steps definitely are, like Janet, my first sponsor. So when the first book came out in 2012, it really, I, I tend to have this, some people call it diplomatic, some people call it bridge building type of voice that is very much a both and. Yeah. So saying that there's still a lot the 12 steps can offer folks, yet there's a lot that we know now that we didn't know in 1935 about trauma and that can be in included. And Janet was just really good with, with trauma informing everything from the beginning. She knew not to push too hard with me. She knew to take my trauma history into consideration when she worked with me. And I hear some horror stories of what people encounter in rehab centers or even in 12-step meetings that I know that if that had been my experience, I probably wouldn't have stayed around. And I may or may not have found recovery, but I'm grateful that I did because somebody brought me into this who got trauma. And when I was two years into my own sobriety journey, I was back in the United States because I was working in Europe with her when I got sober. And I was back in the United States. She had sent me to do graduate work in counseling because she thought I would be good at it. I didn't think I'd be good at it, but she knew me better than I knew myself, <laughs> evidently. And when I was doing my counseling internship, I found that a lot of my trauma stuff was getting hit on by the people in the systems I was working in. And I always say, if you're going to work as a clinical trauma person, brace yourself because your, your own issues that still need healed will get revealed. And being a professional is not gonna cut it in and of itself, but it is an invitation for you to dig deeper into your own work. And so when I had about two years sober, that's when I was exposed to EMDR therapy for myself as a client and uh, things like yoga and meditation and mindfulness, which are now uh, practices that I teach. Uh, that was all part of this ongoing recovery journey that needed to be trauma informed because if I wouldn't have done that deeper trauma work, I don't know. It, it was funny because I wanted to stay sober, but I felt like my mental health was so struggling and there were days I just wanted to end my life. So I think that's the struggle for a lot of people in recovery that they may get some sobriety time or some recovery time. But then when your main coping skill is no longer on the table, there's a lot of issues there that can still remain and a lot of traumatic wounds that need to be healed. So my story is such where I've needed both paths. I've needed the 12 step path. I've needed a lot of the progressive interventions that trauma counseling is offering. Uh, I've long believed the two can exist together. And from the original trauma, the 12 steps in 2012, and this new edition of it that's coming out, the new and expanded edition, uh, I've really sought to bring voice to this both and paradigm with recovery. Yeah, beautiful. And that was one of the things that I wrote down when I read the intro was um, how you utilize both outside help and diverse spiritual practices. I love how you worded that because in, in that includes that meditation, yoga, mindfulness. Right. And what's really cool is that I too do the same things. I utilize this, that EMDR for four years uh, to heal that early childhood trauma. But then as I travel on my journey and how crazy what you said about, I was working in the mental health field with kids mm -hmm. uh, at a mental health agency and here local. And I hadn't yet started on my healing journey. I hadn't yet found EMDR, but I found I was being triggered by these kids' life stories, these yeah. kids' experiences. And I was helping children build toolboxes as we called them. And we were doing, you know, little YouTube kid directed yoga yeah. videos, or we were 
coloring and coloring books, which now that's my favorite, you know, calming strategy, my Zen adult coloring book. But I realized I incorporated the stuff that I was teaching these kids as I started EMDR. I started pulling and building my own toolbox. And it was just this balance of the therapy world, but then these, these outside alternative, which are actually now, I don't even know if they're alternative, like tapping. They're um, becoming much more mainstream. Yeah, and exactly. that's, that's thanks to uh, like, for instance, Dr. Shapiro, who's the founder of EMDR was really insistent that we had to get quality research on it yeah. in order for it to even be embraced as mainstream. And I, I prefer complementary instead of alternative. Uh, Because I do think a lot of these strategies we're talking about, particularly yoga, meditation, expressive arts, are the original healing arts. Yeah. If anything, modern psychotherapy was the alternative. So I I think complementary is just a word that very much defines what I do. And I'm very intrigued by your story. Because for me, my first internship site was working with kids and children when I had come back uh, and and was in graduate school. And I was being very triggered by the way I saw the system treat the kids. That that revealed some unhealed stuff that I had to work on. So thank yeah. you for sharing that part about you because we have that in common. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I eventually had to walk away from it um, because I just, I realized that I was being triggered on so many levels. Um, there was a suicide at a local high school and I'd been called into that facility. And I thought, I'm not gonna be healthy for these kids. I'm not going to be able to do this and provide what they're going to need because of my own trauma history. And so I, I knew I needed to then really do the healing work on myself right, um, and do what was right. And something kids. I talk about in the book and it really permeates a lot of my teaching is that getting triggered especially when you have a trauma history, is very normal. And some of the rhetoric out there around triggering is let's try to avoid the triggers. But that's not feasible in life. I always say life is a relapse trigger. Life is a trauma trigger. Look, I mean, we're recording this now during the COVID-19 crisis. One big relapse trigger uh, or trauma trigger around. And so the key becomes, I feel, when you get triggered, how do you work with it effectively? Um, can you embrace it as an invitation to do deeper healing work? Uh, and that is where I think we need all hands on the table with, yeah. for some folks, it's 12-step recovery. For some folks, it's more of the uh, complementary practices we were talking about. Uh, therapy can certainly do it. And healthy spiritual practice can certainly do it for people. Yes, very much so. And I, and I, and I agree with you 100% because had I been where I am now, I certainly would have invited those because now I welcome that, that almost like the rising of emotions or the, mm-hmm. the, what, what comes to the surface because I look at it now, oh, that's a learning opportunity. This is something right. that I, I really need to take a look at. Why is this surfacing? Um, yeah, so I, I agree. Yes, very much so. I love it. And I just, I love that you just um, brought up the whole spiritual aspect of it. And one of the things I had read um, was that, you know, with the 12 step program, and I think this is one of the criticisms is, is like the religious part of it in, or I mean, truly religious, I guess, is yeah. more accurate in that you, you're addressed, you know, even agnostic and atheists yes. and, and outside of, I guess, the Christian 
Um, and I think that's an important thing that I did in the book because the reality is the language of the 12 steps is higher power. Right. And there's even an acknowledgement that that higher power does not have to be anything that's, that's deity necessarily. It's just something that's not you. And as will happen in the United States and various places in the world, meetings and treatment centers tend to take on a regional variety and you get a lot of Christian messaging and Christian influence making its way in. And I, I don't want it to sound like I'm impugning that for people for whom that works. Right. Yet so much of who I am as a person is just because it works for you doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for me. And that applies to, to faith and religion and spirituality as well. And so much of my path is all paths lead to something that that's ultimate. And I think that's what 12 steps we're getting at, but like, like with a lot of the criticism with the 12 steps, it all depends on the hands of the people they're put in. Yes. And that's where you tend to see a lot of, um, you know, just downright discrimination in meetings about people who believe differently is, is the way I'll put it gracefully. And atheists and agnostics are, are particularly susceptible to that. Um, even the chapter in the AA book to agnostics is horribly written. I mean, I, I don't like it at all. It's very placating. It's very trying to convince people. And many atheists and agnostics I know just think the chapter is more about trying to make leaders feel better than it is to try to actually reach them. So there's you know, a beautiful community of atheists and agnostics in 12-step programs. They have their own sub-organizations, some of their own literature. Uh, I had a client many years ago who introduced me to their work, and I found it very compelling to, to see that you can still apply 12-step principles even if you don't believe in God. And I feel it was important to address um, atheists, agnostics, people who believe differently in the chapter on spiritual diversity as a trauma-informed issue because so many people have experienced mistreatment by being put down for what they do or don't believe. And I don't feel there's a place for that in recovery. Yeah, I agree. And I know just, I, I have my own personal experience and I won't talk directly to it out of respect, but there was, um, I was raised Catholic. And so when someone leading wants to say, you know, they're our father, but it made someone else uncomfortable that was there that stepped away and out of the room. And so I know I felt like, oh, well that, we, sh we shouldn't be exclusionary by making yeah. someone feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and that's an issue of great debate. I, I feature a, a person in the book who I know personally, uh, Mike L, and he is a atheist who has stayed sober well over 35 years in, in AA. And I asked him directly, have you done it? Especially <laughs> because in our part of the country, there, there can be a, a pretty intense Christian influence on how some meetings are run. And he says, of course, it bothers me that so many people have taken it upon themselves to add Christian prayers into meetings, because that's, that's an optional thing. Groups decide group to group. It's not particularly an AA standard. Um, and so he says there's things that bother him, but he's chosen not to let it be a deal breaker for the things that he does get out of the meetings. And he also said yeah. something that I think is pertinent, that his first sponsor who guided him through the steps and guided him through recovery, didn't care that he was atheist, agnostic, however he identified, that he loved him and accepted him just as he was. And we really need more of that in recovery because there is this sense that people who are struggling need to be shown a different way. 
and we tend to interpret that as tough love telling it like it is and and whatnot and i don't believe anybody has ever really gotten well through tough love and being yelled at and preached at and evangelized mm -hmm. and an anecdote from the book that really does summarize much of my teaching in this in this area is something Janet told me when she first got to know me when she knew I was struggling when I came to her with some of my issues she listened very patiently just listened, didn't try to jump in didn't try to correct she listened very patiently and afterwards she said Jamie after everything you've been through it's no wonder you turned out alcoholic so what now what are you going to do about it now? And in that phrase or that question, she both validated me and then challenged me. And I don't think I would have been open to being challenged unless I was first validated and accepted for exactly who I was. And too often professionals and religious figures and folks in the field and folks in, in meetings, we try to challenge first. And that is where people shut down. Yeah. And that is where we can't get 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 the message through because I mean I'm the first to admit I needed to be challenged people I work with need to be challenged and I tend to see one or, or of or the other extreme that in trauma world especially we can get so but it's the trauma's fault it's the trauma's fault yes I agree with that but we're not doing anybody any favors by continuing to just kind of sign it off as well they're this way because of the trauma what now like Janet said how are we yeah. going to help a person heal Yet on some of the 12 step end of things, I've seen it like too tough love. Too, and so we need that balance. And what Janet taught me is, is what I've really found to be just the most compelling way to work with folks, which is you validate and accept them first. And then once a person feels validated and accepted at the degree they're prepared and open to hearing, you can come in with the challenging or you know suggestions. Because fundamentally 12 step programming has been described as suggestive only and i adore that language i adore the language in 12-step programs of experience strength and hope that when i'm working with somebody i'm not telling you what to do <laughs> i'm sharing with you right. from my experience that hey this this thing you're about to try was not a very good idea for me <laughs> you know, you're, you're welcome to give it a try and and I, I i unfortunately what has happened is when sponsors counselors people in the field get their own stuff in the way that is where we can get so combative and not suggestive and not sharing of experience strength and hope and that's where we shut people down and that's not good yes i say often on this podcast and it's come up in many conversations but we're all on our own healing journeys and when we can honor that and that's exactly what i'm hearing here and looping back around to that trauma-informed care approach when we can honor where each person is on their own healing journey and how much of that trauma have they processed, have they worked through, how much is still is in the process, yeah. or how much are they in denial of uh, that it's having an effect on their lives. Yeah, very cool. Just taking a moment to thank a sponsor to the Healing Place podcast, Fiscally Sponsored Project through Fractured Atlas and for their generous donation this week at the Trauma Warrior level, the Phoenix Fund via Blue Mountain Community Foundation. Thank you. Now back to the show. The Institute for Creative Mindfulness 
Yes, that is my company. So Mm -hmm. Institute for Creative Mindfulness is essentially a training organization, uh, but we have a lot of other sub-outreach projects as well. So uh, I do full-scale training in both EMDR therapy and expressive arts therapy. And I went with the name Institute for Creative Mindfulness because any training we do really works on that value of bringing a mindfulness-informed approach into how we train and also looking at creative solutions for training. Because even as a mindfulness and yoga teacher, I honor traditional teachings, but I know that they have to be updated for the times. And expressive arts and creativity can really help us do that with with a lot of our folks. so yeah, Institute for Creative Mindfulness is, is my training organization. I have many faculty members and consultants on both programs who partner with me uh, to offer trainings different places in the country and a few places internationally. So if people listening are interested in doing either EMDR, expressive arts, uh, visit our website. And we also have some programs where you don't have to necessarily be involved in either of those training programs. So for instance, we run retreats two times a year. Our upcoming uh, annual Dancing Mindfulness Expressive Arts Retreat we're doing online because we can't do it in person uh, as we normally do in April with with everything that's happening with COVID-19. So, and we also have a media component of Institute for Creative Mindfulness, which we call Creative Mindfulness Media. And that is really what's responsible for producing a lot of the YouTube videos that I do. I have quite a few, I have a lot yeah. <laughs> of YouTube videos out there, a lot of EMDR demos, and many mindfulness-based skills that even the general public can benefit from, even if you're not a clinician. So uh, we have some dancing mindfulness videos that are up on YouTube, some just general meditation videos, a couple other expressive art strategies. So I really like that the platform of YouTube has given us a chance to produce content that not only helps our trainees review what they've learned at trainings, but can give the general public some exposure to some of these practices, especially if you can't travel to a training or a retreat. So that's ICM in a nutshell. Wonderful. We've, we've, existed oh formal, we've existed formally as that name since 2015, although I, I had kind of a, a mounting series of consulting and training businesses that led up to that. <laughs> and then when it became clear that more people wanted to partner with me to train my types of curriculum, uh, I went with that name because it just felt like it really fit what we do. Yeah, I love it. And I'm a huge, huge fan of mindfulness. I talk about it often because 54321 mindfulness is another one of my favorite go-tos. If uh, I had severe panic attacks for 25 mm. years, which is the catalyst that brought me to EMDR. Oh. But, oh my gosh, mindfulness has just been um, a daily practice, really in nature walks and observing and in, in, in just bringing myself to a very grounded centered here in the now right um space and yeah so I love and it's it. and it's really there to be accessed anywhere in daily life and that is the heart of how i teach it that yes sitting mindfulness practice is very valuable to me it's valuable to a lot of people it really is kind of the heart of mindfulness meditation in so many ways yet the essence of 
awareness, which really is my favorite way of describing mindfulness, is that it's everywhere. And we can tap into it in every life experience, whether it's taking a walk, vacuuming your carpet. Uh, And and a, a myth that I like to bust is that mindfulness is not automatically synonymous with being a relaxation technique. Yes, for some people, it can help relax and rest and settle, which is great. But I think one of the greatest gifts I've gotten from practicing mindfulness is to be able to just be with anything, whether that be something horrible like grief or sadness or the stress of what's going on in the world right now, that through consistently practicing mindfulness, I can just be with what is and not try to shove it away and realize that riding that wave helps me feel better in the long run than trying to resist it. Yes. Amen and hallelujah. Mm. I, I've been pleasantly surprised at how I've stayed so calm throughout this entire pandemic and lockdowns and so forth. But I really credit my daily practice of, and, and I, I love how you're saying just an awareness of staying present in the moment and whatever emotions arise and, you know, it's kind of felt like this. <laughs> Ride the wave yeah, is, right. a meta- is a yeah. metaphor that's used by a lot of leaders in modern <laughs> mindfulness work. And I've, I've really liked that kind of cheerleading. Ride the wave, my friends. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. So you said the word myth, and that's one of the questions I, mm-hmm. I like to ask my guests. Is any myths or facts that you want to clarify for people? I think I did one of my big ones, actually yeah, two, yeah. Two, of, two of my big ones already, right. that mindfulness is not just a relaxation technique. Uh, another myth I often bust is that the 12 steps themselves are inherently very rigid and not trauma-informed, and I totally disagree with that because the steps in the program themselves, I believe, are incredibly flexible and trauma-informed. It's what people do with them that tends to be the problem. And the heart of trauma informing anything, um, and I think I can pass this along as a teaching on, on, in this forum, is that there's always a modification. So even in the steps, if a word like powerless or character defects is an edge for you, modify it, find another word. Uh, and yeah, there might be some rigid folks who resist that, but the heart of doing anything in a trauma-informed manner is, well, let's find a word that works for you. So for instance, in step six, we talk about character defects, and that is obviously an edge for many folks who have survived trauma, particularly if they're carrying a cognition like I am defective as one of their core beliefs. Uh, But for instance, the program of Workaholics Anonymous, which I've worked, (laughs) I always say that's funny, I've worked a Workaholics Anonymous program (laughs) over the years, Uh, they replace uh, character defects with negative coping skills. It's the things you have done really as a response to trauma that are no longer serving you. And I find that when people can have some of these edgy words just translated or worked through in in a slightly different way, oh, you can really get to the essence of, of what the step means. So I would say to anybody who's listening to this, if they think that the 12 steps are outdated and aren't trauma sensitive, trauma responsive in any way, check out what we're doing because I really think they can be if they're approached with this spirit of both and and a willingness to modify. Yes. And I, 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 again, I appreciate that because I found myself in Al-Anon meetings when certain, when, when the, the steps were read and, and being, becoming almost defensive, like my wall went up and I could sure. feel it like, no, <laughs> or, or because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you for, for that and clarifying because it is a great idea then to even almost use our own wording for what works for us. I mean, yep. with, yeah, okay, awesome. All right, so any other um, strategies that you wanna talk about for people along that may be on their healing journey? There's no shame in seeking help. Um, and I recognize help can come in a variety of forms. Sometimes it's professional, sometimes it's from peers, sometimes it's from spiritual leaders, uh, might be from a teacher, because a lot of teachers are some of the people I've most known to be able to be that tender voice for folks. Um, and I understand that that's easier said than done to ask for help, particularly if we grew up with messaging that asking for help made you weak, or maybe if at earlier points asking for help didn't seem to work out for you. Uh, it is possible to heal by oneself, but I do find it's a lot harder to do that. So I always say there's, there's no shame in asking for help and there's no one size fits all. Uh, what you have to fundamentally be able to ask yourself in whatever you're trying, whether it be 12-step programming, therapy, yoga, meditation, a combination of all of them, is am I feeling better and is my life more adaptive and functional than it was like last month or the month before or the year before? And if you can honestly answer those questions, seeing that you're making some progress in the right direction, then what you're doing is working. So stick with it. And maybe you need to, to modify. Remember, there's always a modification uh, if something isn't working precisely as you want it to. Yet I do think the key is this is a section we talk about in the book. Um, you may find this helpful in the, in the series of the podcast is that I don't like the word ready because many folks will say, well, well, I'm not ready to change yet. I'm not ready to heal. I'm not ready to do those steps. And uh, it was probably my hatred for the word was probably seated by a, a, a man I used to date who would always say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And at one point it dawned on me that, wow, he's just using that as a big old excuse. And I see a lot of my clients have used that as an excuse. Yeah. I'm sure I've used it as an excuse at, at some points. So what I like to say is, what do you need to do to prepare yourself? Because readiness is a tricky word. Readiness can keep you in this perpetual loop of excuse making or this perpetual rut of stuck. So yes, it could be that you're not adequately prepared. I will give you that. In a hundred percent. So to maybe ask yourself, what do I have to do to prepare to make some of these changes I want to make? And so I think that probably my final piece of parting advice in this context is whenever you catch yourself saying, I'm not ready, maybe try replacing that with, I'm not prepared. Yeah. And then that automatically follows up with the question, what do I have to do to prepare myself? Wow. You just motivated me to finish that book because it kept saying, right. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> so yeah, maybe yeah. I'm not prepared. And what do I need to do to better what do prepare I need to myself? Do? Yeah, awesome. I love it. All right. Well, again, if, if you have anything else you'd like to share with listeners before we before we end, just thank you very much for literally making this healing place available to have conversations like this and. Let's all keep having these conversations in places where we can have some influence, even if that influence is only on one other person, because this is how we move in the right direction.
Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for joining me. And I mean, the work you're doing is incredible and inspirational. I will uh, certainly share here on the video, but also on all of my, all of my little social media blasts. I'll put the link for the pre-order because your book is available. Yes. yes. For pre-order. It's available for pre-order. And I also want to shout out a website that I keep called traumamadesimple.com. Okay. And that is where all of my YouTube videos are collected in one oh, place. Wonderful. So if people would like to access them in one place, any uh, podcasts I appear on, I link them there. Any articles I do online, I link them there. So it's a good kind of one-stop shopping for online resources that I do uh, that folks and check out. Wonderful. And I'll list that on this as well. So great. All right. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining in today and taking a listen. If you want to check out previous podcasts, make sure to go to a YouTube channel. You can also just, I find the easiest ways to just Google the Healing Place podcast because we're on Spotify. We're now on Pandora, iTunes. Uh, I just found out yesterday the podcast has been downloaded in 60 countries. Woohoo! And, um, and then also on our Facebook channel, if you go there um, to the Healing Place Podcast Facebook, you can find, I created a pandemic self-care uh, series that we're doing and put them all in one place. We're at 30 videos, 30 interviews on that yet now. Great information on self-care and other care strategies during this time. So um, again, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself.